This is an ABC podcast. Matthew Fikovsky grew up in Melbourne's northeastern suburbs. Now, you won the under-11s footy grand final in Diamond Creek. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, it was a big day. <laughs> you could have been a footy star. Why science? Uh, to be honest, I, football wasn't something that I pursued too seriously. <laughs> I think after, <laughs> after the glory of the grand final, um, I was washed up. <laughs> That was the year 2000, and with his fledgling footy career in tatters, Matt instead became a cancer scientist. He's doing really important research around immunotherapies for childhood leukaemia. And this year, he's set up his own lab and team at the University of Colorado in the USA. So it's an exciting time. And running your own lab is what most or many young scientists aim for. But in Australia, it's become a pipe dream, with some scientists hitting a complete dead end. I'm Natasha Mitchell, and this is Science Friction. Matt did his PhD in Melbourne, but moved to the US to do postdoctoral research at NYU, that's New York University. And one day he was heading off to get a meal at his favourite ramen place in Manhattan. And NYU School of Medicine is on the East River, and it's about 10 blocks away from the United Nations. And a big UN General Assembly meeting is on. So you couldn't really move around there and there were all these boats out on the water with machine guns everywhere. It was a big song and dance. But He sees this security entourage ahead of him and there's a guy in the middle. And at the time, I'm on the phone with my older brother, Peter, and we're just talking about everything back in Australia. And I said, hold on, mate, I have to check something. So I turned to one of the entourage and I said, oh, is that the Prime Minister? Matt had been in New York for a while and he didn't see the PM on the news every day. And Scott Morrison turned to me and said, it sure is, mate. Matt's flabbergasted. He turned to me and he's like, oh, how are you, mate? And I was like, I'm very good, Mr. Prime Minister. Um, And he's like, what do you do here in New York? It's great to meet an Aussie out here. And I said to him, you know, I'm a scientist. And he's like, wow, scientists, you know, we're we got to get talent like you back in Australia. Do you have any prospects of coming back home? And I gave him a pretty half-hearted answer. I was like, oh, you know, uh, let's see how it goes here. And I was just stunned. Anyway, he's like, well, you have a wonderful day. And he is a professional politician. He knows how to turn it on. But as Matt walked away, he could have kicked himself because he had a whole lot more to say to the then PM. There's a couple of things. So there was an immigrant crisis from Burma, Myanmar. Uh, My mum is from Burma and she immigrated to Australia in the 60s. And at the time, there was an ethnic cleansing of Muslim people in Western Burma, the Rohingya people. In retrospect, I would have loved to have said to him, you know, uh, why do you not want these people in? And Matt also had a lot to say about why bright young scientists like him aren't coming back to Australia any time soon. This is what he wish he'd said that day. How do you want to improve this system that's failing so many scientists? For a country that historically has done so well in medical research, can you inject more money and more investment in people so that we can continue to make these discoveries that are really changing lives. You said none of that. (laughs) I said none of it and walked away confused while being ridiculed by my brother. 
awkward. But in light of last week's Jobs and Skills Summit, are our politicians in actual fact paying attention to the disastrous job prospects for young scientists here? Now, heading offshore to study or work in overseas labs is often seen as a bit of a rite of passage in science. I think it's part of the endeavour that you have as a scientist, right? Like you do want to do it on a world scale. So how will you know what's happening if you don't go out and see what others are doing across the world? Cancer biologist, Assistant Professor Louisa Cimino, originally from Melbourne, now in Miami. You want to know what it's like to do science kind of in an environment where maybe things can happen faster, where there is more funding, there are big labs. I think that's the kind of experience that Australians get when they go abroad to do their scientific training. Access to the latest technology or more patients for clinical trials and biological samples, also really important if you're in cancer research. Getting overseas experience isn't new. What is new is the uncertainty over whether Australian scientists like Louisa and Matt will ever be able to return home to work if they want to. Rising stars in cancer research on the show today, America can't seem to get enough of them and Australia can't reverse its brain drain. So what's going on? How are Australian scientists viewed from the Northern Hemisphere, do you think? Amazingly, absolutely amazingly. Uh, we are viewed very, very well. It's, a, it's viewed as a particularly good training environment. That's despite PhDs in Australia only lasting three years. That's half of what's required in America. So we're relatively lean with our training, but our talent is so rich. Associate Professor Jared Dudikov heads up a lab at the prestigious Fred Hutchinson Cancer Centre in Seattle, and he's investigating ways to boost our immune system during cancer treatment. Immunology, which is my area, there are some absolutely world-class immunologists in Australia as well. So it is viewed very, very well. The training is excellent. That's what everyone in the US has figured out. And so labs love it when Australians bring their technical expertise. Many institutes in Australia, they really bat far above what they would be expected to produce in terms of major discoveries in biology. Australia is responsible for so many beautiful pieces of biology and science that we use and talk about all the time here in the United States. And that's why it's so sad for me that I didn't see a future for myself there when I was making this decision. The decision that Matt's made to stay in the USA, to not come home. I was at a conference in Brisbane in 2019, and a lot of the people that had mentored me during my PhD had just told me things are not good right now in Australia. This is not a good time to be starting a lab in Australia, the government are not pumping money into medical research. They were very clear on saying that you will not thrive here because you won't have the money to support your own research program. As you were looking back to Australia from the US, what did that feel like mm -hmm. for you at this critical juncture of your career? It, it felt like it wasn't going to happen. When I started to talk to other institutes in the United States and they started to discuss the amount of money they're willing to invest in me, they were willing to take a gamble on me despite on paper me not being perhaps the most accomplished candidate. And then I would hear from people that had interviewed back in Australia what was being offered there. There was no comparison. 
Unbelievably, this is the very point at which Australia is killing off many scientific careers, just as they're getting started. So when Louisa Cimino was ready to launch her own lab after completing a PhD and a couple of postdoctoral fellowships in Australia and the USA, she did interviews here and there and made the same decision as Matt. And she's now set up her first lab at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Centre at the University of Miami, where she's focused on improving leukaemia therapies. So I was interviewing at institutions in the US and I had focused mainly in Melbourne, my hometown, for lab head positions there. So the five years was the same time commitment for each of these contracts. But the institutions in the US were offering a lot more money, startup money. So up front, you would have, we also call this hard money, where you know you can run your lab with this amount of money every year for five years. It's not unusual to get somewhere between three hundred to 500000 per year in the US. In Australia, you get pretty much no money to start up your lab in Australia. Yeah, like institutes that I think are some of the leading research institutes for my field in Australia, they will commit to your salary for five years, but you don't get any extra money for purchasing reagents or employing people. And I had spoken to junior faculty there. They couldn't even employ someone in their first year or two because they hadn't brought in the grant money yet to be able to afford to employ extra staff to then train. I didn't know how you got a lab. It seemed like, I don't know, did somebody have to die before you could kind of get like one in, one out type thing? It just, it seemed so opaque how you actually get to that position in Australian science. Jared Dudikov. I guess the real question is, how easy is it for rising stars to actually rise? In America, it is a very well-defined pathway. You do a postdoctoral fellowship, maybe you change to some other weird title that's not postdoc, it's like a research associate, I was a senior research scientist, like you're a staff scientist at that point, but generally it's only a temporary-ish type thing. And then you go on the job market, you apply for positions, you'll give a talk, you give what's called a chalk talk, that's where you talk about your research, what you actually want to do, the other talk is kind of what you already have done, and then hopefully you get offers. And so this is where you get a startup package, you get money to actually set up the lab, you become a faculty member, so you get your own lab, you get your own money, essentially, you get your own staff, your own equipment, and it's a very defined pathway. That just doesn't seem to exist in Australia. It has gotten better. It sounds like utopia to a lot of early career researchers <laughs> in Australia. I mean, they can't imagine yeah. that possibility here. It kind of is. I mean, it's, it's daunting as well because you walk into an empty office on your first day and it's like, right, now I've got to do something. It's definitely stressful and there is a period where the money starts running out and you've got to get other monies to try and, to try and fill in the gap. But it's, it's definitely somewhat utopian. For sure. But it sounds like this incredible startup package that you get frees you up to actually do what you're paid to do, which is think of really good ideas, design experiments, and build a team to make them happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what it's both designed to do and what it actually does do. And they're like, oh, no, now you need to enjoy this and be a scientist and show us what you can do. And I really hope that I do provide them with a return on investment. So that's where I get nervous, where it's like, I say that they've invested that much in me. 
<laughs> I need to make sure that I succeed. But back in Australia, talented scientists at Louise's stage are potentially kneecapped before they even have a chance to succeed. So you might get a job at a university or a research institution. Excellent. You're ready to lead your own research team, just like Louisa. And yet there's still no guarantee you'll get a grant to fund that next step. It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And competition for grants is cutthroat. Last year, 90% of applicants for National Health and Medical Research Council or NHMRC IDEAS grants were unsuccessful. That doesn't mean 90% of applications weren't good. There just isn't enough money to go around. And that can be a career ender for an early to mid-career scientist. Oh, they're struggling, absolutely. And I don't know what their options are. Leaders of laboratories in Australia, their staff are starting to get laid off because they missed a grant. They missed that wad of money that keeps them going for three years. Some of my best friends lost their jobs and, and it, I was just so sad for them because you know how talented they are and how creative they are and they're just hanging on by a thread and then eventually it gives and they're out of a job and you know, that could be the person that comes up with something great in the future and we've lost it. Do you know people who have had to leave science and medical research altogether because the funding just hasn't been there for their work in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've known many of them. In the US, academic science is losing talent as well, but it's different. They're going to companies now that support bigger salaries, more benefits, health benefits and so on for the individual. But the, the brains are still in science. They just moved to a private enterprise. In Australia, there's not as much private sector for these talents to be retained in the sphere of science, whether private or academic. So yeah, you just simply lose them just like that. And if you do stay in science in America, you're not as reliant on government grants to start or sustain your research. Many foundations offer grants, especially for junior independent investigators. And I, you know, have benefited a lot from that. I actually don't have a federal grant yet. We're talking about philanthropy, any field that you work for. It could be an obscure disease, congenital disease that maybe affects 50 people in the world. There's probably a foundation grant that you can apply for in the US. That's not something I hear about that my colleagues in Australia are able to apply for. There's a lot more get out of jail free cards in the US than in Australia when it comes to philanthropy. A lot more private groups willing to invest in research groups to keep them going that little bit longer to get them that data they need to get to the next step. And I feel like many Australian research groups are really living on the knife's edge of the government's decision to give out money. Simple as that. Things are still competitive in the US, but young scientists like Matt Vakovsky are encouraged to focus on doing science and building their lab teams in those first few years, not chasing grants. The head of the haematology division here, Dr. Craig Jordan, he said, you have this money, really go for it at the start and throw caution to the wind in many ways, because this is your freedom as a young scientist when you get that startup funding. So really go for it. But I don't live or die by an NHMRC cycle right now. And one day I will really depend on the National Institutes of Health, which is our equivalent here in the US for a big grant. And that's coming. But for these first initial years where you really want to produce 
exciting new data and make a name for yourself, I feel like I'm really well supported. I don't have that sense of certainty if I went back to Australia. Yeah, even the fact that there would be signing bonuses, they would give you more money to potentially start a down payment on a house. So they really do care about trying to recruit you so that you have some stability in your life, both from the career side, but even in the personal aspects. These super talented Australian scientists just don't seem to be holding out a begging bowl for funding in the US in the way they would here. Louisa Cimino was in demand. She got offers from two American universities and she picked the one that gave her 50% more startup funding. I just know that I was really interested in creating the best opportunity to be successful as a scientist because then that would build my own stability going forward. I mean, that's a, that's a radically different situation to what the situation might have been for you in Australia. Definitely. So, you know, one of the places that I was considering that I was really excited about would have only had enough money for me to fund my salary upfront for the five-year contract that I would sign up for. It's really not enough to build enough hands on deck to really start making the big discoveries that you probably are itching to make. And there was another important factor that influenced Louise's decision. In Australia, I didn't see as many female lab heads. I had interviews and I had dinners where it was just all men, all male faculty. And I thought to myself, where are all the women? representation matters. That's what they say. And it's true. I would look around and be like, well, where are my contemporaries, you know, or the women that I can look up to? I made the choice within the US to pick the institution, not only that gave me the most funding, but also had the greatest representation of women on faculty. We were very, very much looking towards coming back to Australia. Both about my wife and my uh, families are from there. We've got friends there. We grew up there. That's kind of where our life was. And so, in our minds, we were always just going across the US for, you know, two to three years and then we'd be coming back. We actually owned a house back in Melbourne at the time. And so, you know, we had very strong roots down in Melbourne. Jared Dudikov even passed up a very prestigious research award in the US in favour of what's called a CJ Martin Fellowship, designed to support Australian researchers overseas to subsequently return home to set up their own labs. But when push came to shove, Australia just didn't have what he felt he needed to grow his research. He's ambitious for his science, and the US seems to be as well. And it's possibly the same thing leading to the weirdness of the country as well, which is just this rugged individualism. And I think that kind of leads to maybe a, a greater propensity to maybe take risks, be allowed to fail, perhaps. There is definitely a different culture over here, definitely a different yeah, ecosystem that allows these things to happen. So my dad, he loves Harley Davidsons. He always said in America, you have the biggest and best of everything and you have the worst of everything as well. People in the US are willing to roll the dice. The mentality is simply different day to day. Children in the US are all told you can be the president, you can be an astronaut. I don't recall having that type of <laughs> God, blind no. confidence as a child. Um, I feel like I was always like, uh, you know, you know, mum was working cleaning when I was a kid and working in nursing homes and just working extremely hard. My mum worked all the time. She would iron clothes for people. She'd clean their houses. My dad was working in the army when I was very young. And then in this factory, nothing was really given to them. And in the US, you just see this upside that you don't see so often in Australia. So that kind of opportunity in the US is particularly appealing to an individual just leaving their PhD. You want to really maximize 
that energy that you have leaving your PhD by doing the biggest possible experiments. It's, it's a kid in a candy store in America. That's what it feels like when you first get there. And it's no surprise that some of the most impactful, even Nobel Prize winning research happens in those early years of a scientist's career. So where will Australia's next Nobel winners come from if they're limping along, always looking for grants? It would have to be a really, really strong opportunity to bring you back, that's for sure. It just seems to have been getting worse every time we speak to somebody, it's worse than the last time. And so, Apart from being attractive from a lifestyle, from a family, from all of those perspectives, from a career perspective, it always has seemed like it would be an uphill climb. Every school shooting, my wife kind of gives me that look, right, which is, should we be going home now? There are many, many, many problems with this country. I have serious concerns about democracy at large over here. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet but it has definitely crossed our minds. But then I, I honestly look towards Australia and say, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I can do what I want to do in Australia. It's very emotional when I go home uh, because I'm extremely close to my family. I, they, and my brothers and I, you know, we're, we're absolutely so close. And my parents are really supportive of me being in the United States and doing this job. But I know that it affects them a lot that I'm here in a place where it's unsafe. The United States is politically unstable. Dangerous things happen here a lot, but they know that I'm doing the thing that I really want to do. Would you like to come back to Australia to lead research here at some stage? I think so. Down the line, I really want to give it a good push here in the United States. They've invested in me a lot in terms of the money that they're giving to me here, that people are really supportive of my research here and Australia. I mean, I still talk to people back home and they're extremely supportive of me. But financially in the US, they've they've really invested a lot in me and have given me so much. So I do want to give this a crack for quite a while. Um, and then who knows down the line whether I'll come back. I just hope that down the line, the Australian government can see just how valuable scientists are to the country, historically how important they've been and how much they'll contribute to health and the well-being of the country in the future and invest in that. This is the easiest one of all. It's money. It's all about money. I mean, you know, there are definitely other things, but Australia is considerably behind other OECD nations in terms of how much GDP it spends on research. That is an absolute clear, clear, clear as day problem that needs to be fixed. People hear this from scientists actually all over the world. Not enough resources, not enough research funding, everyone's crying poor. Now, everyone is crying poor as we live through this pandemic. Funding is scarce for everything. Every sector has been squeezed. Can science ask for privileged access to limited resources in the current time? There is a known metric for the return on research. And it's somewhere in the order of 2 to $3, right, for every dollar spent. So we know that this isn't just throwing money away, right? This is actually contributing to the economy. Now, it's not going to be tomorrow, but this is an investment towards the longer-term economy. And I, I think it would be crazy to try and let Australia slip on that. And I think it, Australia has always, I think, rested on punching above its weight. 
but how much longer can it really do that if if it's not resourced well enough? I think is a, is going to be a real question mark. I think this should be a higher priority. I think this really is time for this to be a much higher priority than it has been basically ever before. My mates growing up all became tradies and that's a really important part of growing Australia. And it's easy to sell people on building the country and tradespeople being the big push in an election. How many times do you see a politician walk around in a hard hat who's never lifted a hammer in their life? But it's very appealing to the voter. If you tell someone, I'm going to invest in science and maybe in 15, 20 years, something good will happen. It's not really inspiring to a lot of people. It's like you do not win voters with medical research, I don't think. And I wish that people did. And I like to see the leaders of these institutes, you know, rubbing shoulders with prime minister and stuff now. That's all well and good. But now it's down to the government to actually do something about it because it doesn't look like particularly fertile ground for people who want to come back home to Australia. Louisa, I hope we get you back to Australia at some point. We need your brain. You know what? There are a lot of brains in Australia. You know, if you make their lives better, if you if you really help them, you'll find that all of these other scientists are going to come back. If scientists don't have to fight for the resources, you're really going to see the kind of creativity that can come from that. My thanks to Louisa Cimino, Jared Dudikov and Matt Vakovsky. And I'd love to hear from you if you relate to their stories. So get in touch with me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or you can go to the Science Friction website, look for Contact Us down the very bottom of the page and click on through. Tell your friends about the Science Friction podcast, spread the word, and you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Science Friction is produced by myself and Lisa Needham and I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.